The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. My name is Diogo de Carvalho Cabral. I'm an assistant professor in environmental history here at the Department of History of uh, Trinity College Dublin. And uh, today we have the honor of receiving um, Professor Edmund Russell, who will be delivering the, uh, the lecture, Greyhound Nation, a co-evolutionary history of England, 1200-1900. Um, um, and this is part of Trinity Center for Early Modern History Research Center series in association with Trinity Long Room Hub. Um, let me first, before um, uh, making room for Professor Russell, just a brief introduction of, of him. Uh, Edmund Russell is the David M. Roderick Professor of Technology and Social Change and Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University. He works primarily in environmental history and history of technology. Professor Russell has shaped those fields by pioneering the environmental history of war as a field. And he also introduced evolutionary history as a field of history. Um, his research and teaching have won many, many awards, including the um, Edelstein Prize, Leopold Heidi Prize, Forum for, for the History of Science in America Prize, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Professor Russell is the immediate past president of the American Society for Environmental History and was vice president of the American Historical Association. Um, so Professor Russell will be uh, delivering a, you know, a, a, a roughly 45 minutes um, talk. And after that, we'll be um, opening the room for uh, a, a Q&A uh, session. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, it's our honor, Professor Russell, uh, over to you. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be invited to participate in this session and thank you for the kind introduction. The talk I'm going to give to you today is based on a, a book that came out a few years ago that has the same title as the title for the talk, Greyhound Nation, A Coevolutionary History of England, 1200 to 1900. Let me tell you a little bit more about myself and I have to throw in two important caveats. I am not a modern an early modern historian, nor a European historian. I consider myself a visitor to those fields. You all are, are experts in those fields. So I am looking forward to this talk as a chance to learn from you about how my understanding of this topic might be deepened as much as I hope to share what I um, have figured out about the topic. As Jogo mentioned, my primary field is environmental history. I expect most of you know what that is, but if you don't, it's the field that studies the interaction between people and environments over time. It's been the fastest growing field in North America over the past 20 years. And there's a very vigorous and large European Society for Environmental History as well. Uh, I also work in the history of technology. I've focused, except for this excursion um, into 
English history and a little bit of global history. I, I've mainly focused on history inside the United States. My research program has consistently returned to the theme of integrating history and biology. I study biology at the graduate level and try to overcome the disciplinary bounds, uh, boundaries between those two fields. My first major area of research was the environmental history of war. And um, then I moved on to evolutionary history. I, I started on this topic because I was convinced that anthropogenic evolution was common and important in history, but almost overlooked by historians. I wanna emphasize, because this is often misunderstood, that when I talk about evolution, I am not talking about biological determinism or social Darwinism or genetic determinism. Uh, evolutionary biologists have long since rejected those ideas and instead see evolution as a contingent process in the same way that historians see history as a contingent process with a lot of variation and change and chance and uh, um, uh, interaction between environment and organisms. So this, this is in no way a return to the old uh, ideas that um, led to things like uh, eugenics and other forms of genetic determinism. So I tried to formalize uh, a framework for studying the role of evolution in human history in a book that you see the cover of on the right. It's called Evolutionary History, and it's meant as a large uh, scale overview. It jumps around the globe to provide examples of types of evolutionary processes that we have seen in history and why they're important. How did I come to study dogs in England? That was a, a decision driven partly by my desire to use dogs as a case study of evolutionary history and partly out of family goals. I had a, a sabbatical uh, scheduled to, to I, I was scheduled to have a sabbatical when our daughters were in primary school. My wife and I wanted to raise our daughters as citizens of the world. And so we wanted to take that sabbatical year somewhere else outside the United States. We thought that England would be a good place to do it. Um, and so we spent a year in England and I studied dogs in England, but that, the, the, to be honest, the primary motive was more uh, educational for our daughters. And uh, it, was, it was a great time. I enjoyed my visit to English history as a subject area, but I, I again, don't claim to be a um, true member of that field. So why study dogs as a case study of evolutionary history? Uh, it's because dogs are familiar. They, we all can recognize dogs and we can all recognize differences among dogs. We know breeds, at least common breeds, and can recognize them on site. Those breed differences are the consequence of human action. People have shaped populations of dogs to have particular traits. I could have chosen to study lots of other species, such as wheat, but if I talk to readers about differences between hard red winter wheat, and Durham wheat, um, eyes might glaze over and people not know what I'm talking about. But as this image shows from the 19th century, 
there are obvious, clear, visible differences between breeds. And so uh, using this as a case study capitalized on knowledge that almost everybody already has. Another advantage of studying dogs is that there are records, the, especially once dog breeding and competition became popular, people left lots of records that I could use to study the subject. So let me tell you what I expected when I started this project. I thought I would, in looking at how evolution played a role in, or excuse me, how people played a role in canine evolution, I thought I'd be focusing on primarily on differences among breeds. And my basic idea was that dogs originated to have specific jobs and, or, or excuse me, breeds originated um, to have specific jobs. So the jobs created breed differences. And then I had this impression that once breeds were created, they stayed roughly the same in appearance and behavior. And that it was easy to distinguish breeds based on appearance and ancestry. And, and if you uh, read the dog literature, you'll often find people saying, well, we can see in this painting an example of an Italian greyhound or a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. So there's this assumption that breeds are easily identifiable by appearance alone. And there's an assumed continuity between those dogs in paintings and dogs that look like them today. And this, this understanding of dog breeds has been promoted primarily by kennel clubs, such as the Kennel Club in England and the American Kennel Club. And they, they have put it out in a variety of books and breed clubs to say much the same thing. So this is the, the literature that dominates the um, published material on dogs. So that's where I started my research. So that was the impression I got from them. But what did I find? I found something quite different. I found that stasis was not the case, not the accurate description for dogs and breeds. The accurate description was change, or just, yeah, description was change over time. The very concept of what constituted a breed or type of dog changed. The traits of individual breeds changed over time. And the uh, one of the more surprising uh, aspects was that you could divide the periods of evolution of breeds into periods and that those mapped quite closely to familiar divisions in political and economic history. In the case of England before and after 1831, and uh, I, I was surprised to find myself talking about modernization as one of the most important um, constellation of factors that shaped coevolution of people and dogs. When I talk about coevolution of people and dogs, I'm talking about physical and behavioral changes in dogs, in this case, greyhounds. With people, I'm talking only about behavioral change grounded in culture. Um, there's no evidence, so far as I know, that people have changed genetically in response to dogs. So let me talk about coevolutionary history. Coevolution is a subset of evolution. Evolution it means change in frequency of traits in populations. And coevolution refers to a process in which two populations of different species interact with each other, each changing the other over time. 
So the key idea is repeated and reciprocal change. To study this, I tried to draw on the strengths of both history, which is great on studying social change over time, and evolutionary ecology, which is great at studying organismal change over time. So the intersection of these fields is what I'm calling coevolutionary history. So for today, what I want to talk about are some really important concepts. One, I want to talk about what breeds are. I mentioned that the standard definition today did not hold up when I looked at the past. Then I want to talk about the idea of niches, which became a very uh, useful tool for thinking about the coevolution of people and animals. Then I want to talk about periods in human greyhound coevolution. If I were to, to sum up one of the biggest patterns between 1200 and 1900 for greyhounds, it's that they went from more to less variation in physical traits and in behavioral traits. That's the, the secular trend. So let's talk about breeds some more, go in a little bit more depth. Um, so today's concept of breeds I call the statue theory. The idea is that dogs are, uh, of a particular breed are uniform. They have nearly identical traits. They are isolated. They don't breed with members of other breeds. If they do, they no longer are a member of either breed. They're called a, called a mutt. Um, the idea is that they're static. They stay static because they are isolated in breeding. And you can, you can identify a dog based on ancestry and appearance. But when I dug into the history of greyhounds, I realized that these were recent definitions that originated in the late 19th century, not the concept that people have had throughout the history of greyhounds. What I found is that the um, it breeds in the past actually were, were quite varied, meaning dogs considered to be the same breed had a lot of variation among them. Another one is that crossbreeding was common and in fact considered especially desirable in shaping the traits of breeds. Crossbreeding did not mean dogs that descended from the crossbreeding were uh, mutts and out of the breed. It meant that, that the breeder was introducing valuable traits into the breed. The dogs changed over time. And um, that in the past, people defined dogs as much by occupation and behavior as, as much by those things as they did by appearance. So appearance was one factor, but you could also just, um, more important actually was what job a dog did. If it did job X, it belonged to breed X. So let me illustrate this with the way that uh, greyhounds show the changing um, nature of breed definitions. I mentioned that the definition changed in the late 19th century. That's because in that period, dog shows be, became very common. And the breed definition that was useful to dog shows was spread widely and still shapes our views today. So to, to show this change, which I can date fairly precisely, I want to use two books by the same author, one book came out in 1859, before dog shows were very popular, and another, 1879, 
which came out after shows had become quite popular. The author was named John Henry Walsh. He went by a pseudonym Stonehenge. He was the leading expert on greyhounds in the 19th century in Britain. And what's very interesting is that in his 1859 book, before dog shows became common, he included this picture that you see on the left. And what he said is, this is a picture of either of two breeds. It, it could be a Scotch greyhound or it could be a deerhound. They looked the same. And notice also that they had a rough coat. I'm gonna come back to the idea of, of coat length and texture as a, uh, an important trait for greyhounds. And what, what uh, the key idea that Walsh said is, these breeds look exactly the same. You distinguish them by behavior. They had different jobs. So here the breed distinction is entirely behavior. The appearance is identical of two different breeds. But then in his 1879 book, Walsh changed his, um, art, his definition quite a bit. He used the same image, but this time he stopped saying that it was an image of a Scotch greyhound. And he said it was only an image of a deerhound. And you can see underneath it, uh, the, the, the um, caption says, Cotter, a deerhound of the pure Glengarry breed. And it describes its, its uh, height and girth. Um, so now we've got just one breed for one, uh, 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 an equivalency, one appearance equals one breed. And um, what you need to know is that this long coat was um, considered a defining breed differentiator. In the uh, before shows, uh, greyhounds often had long, rough coats, but by 1879, dog shows had said rough-coated dogs were not greyhounds. The greyhounds had to have smooth coats. And therefore, if a dog had a rough coat, it couldn't be a greyhound. So the, the idea of a Scotch greyhound with a rough coat had to be jettisoned and greyhounds defined as only dogs having smooth, short coats. And uh, uh, bulldogs also provide a useful touchstone to look at how the concept of breed, breeds changed. Um, the, the idea that a breed stays the same in appearance and behavior is essential to the um, uh, kennel club definition of breeds. But I want you to look at this dog, this bulldog and flip back to an earlier picture that I showed you. I, sorry, my um, PowerPoint's very slow today. No, um, okay, there. Here you could see this dog labeled bulldog. It has straight legs, which are long. It has a snout that is somewhat truncated, but sticks out quite a bit. And it's, it's fairly tall. We don't have a yardstick, but you can see it's much bigger than this poodle here. So it's a, it's a fairly large dog. 
the body is much bigger than the head. Um, today, if we looked at it, we might call it a boxer, but uh, it was labeled in the um, early 19th century, or well, 19th, I've forgotten the year, as a bulldog. Oh, PowerPoint is a forward-looking program. It's quite happy to go forward. Um, so here is a bulldog once dog shows came in. You can see now that the legs are short. They're splayed out to the side. The muzzle has been truncated so that it pushes all the way back into the face. The head's very large in relation to the body size. It looks quite different. One of the um, claims that the dog show world makes is that it is preserving dogs and, and keeping them the same. But in fact, it's the, the show world is constantly changing breeds in ways that enable dogs to win dog shows. And, and a, a, uh, an author in 1904 pointed out that for the show bench, which was the, 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 the venue in which dog shows were held, um, as an object lesson of what can be done by scientific breeding for points, it's, the bulldog is an excellent example of the triumph of man over nature meaning people had changed bulldogs radically from the sort of bulldog I showed you a minute ago to something that looked like this. But as an example of what the dog originally was, he can hardly be considered a success. So at that time, at least some individuals were willing to say that the show world and its point system for judging dogs was responsible for changing breeds quite radically. And Watson also, still had some idea of this notion that a breed should be defined by occupation. And he said the purebred bulldog, as distinct from the working bulldogs earlier, is essentially a gentleman's companion, not a fighter. Bulldogs earlier were bred to um, bait bulls, and that's their name, but they they lost that job and now they were pets for men. Okay, so let's now turn to greyhounds. When did greyhounds originate? If you look at greyhound books, you'll hear, you'll read that they originated eight or 10,000 years ago and have had a continuous line of unbroken descent since then. You'll read that greyhounds behave uh, exact and look exactly the same now as they did eight or 10,000 years ago. But, uh, um, I found no evidence that allows us to make those claims. There are dogs in the past that had a similar shape to greyhounds, but we have no way of knowing whether they, they were the ancestors of today's greyhounds or not. So I ended up um, deciding that the best way to define a breed was a, rather than assuming some sort of genetic continuity that we could not document, I decided the best definition of a breed was social rather than biological, and that a breed was a dog, a group of dogs called by a certain name by the people around them. So by that definition, greyhounds originated in England around 1200. Um, and this is a dog from a little bit later showing what they looked like at the time. Um, the name is partly clear and partly mysterious. Hunt is 
Germanic for dogs, so that's straightforward, what became the English hound. The gray part is unclear. It could, it has, it's related to roots for degree. And I'll also talk about in a moment, greyhound ownership was limited to people of high social degree. Some people said it came from a word for badger. And in fact, there are paintings of dogs that look like this, hunting badgers. Other people said it was based, uh, came from the word Greece. There was an idea that greyhounds originated in ancient Greece. And other people said it was short for great, meaning large, because these were large dogs. I will note on this drawing, it says the greyhound, and it's referring to uh, hunting dogs. So greyhounds in this time were hunting dogs. Okay, so we've got this group of dogs. They do have a name, greyhound in England, so greyhound. But we do not in fact know the ancestry because nobody's done, so far as I know, the genetic study to see whether these dogs descended from dogs that looked like them in an earlier period. They, they could have been shaped from dogs that looked different in England, or they could have been brought to England uh, from somewhere else. If they were brought to England, I think the strongest candidate were the Les Friers in, from Norman, France, um, who look quite similar. And given the strong links between Normandy and uh, Britain at the time, it would be quite logical that they move back and forth. I think that's the most likely scenario, but we can't assume that's the case. So this is a, a drawing from 1658 of uh, a greyhound of the day. And you can see there, greyhound is spelled a little bit differently. I'm lumping all these variant spellings together, saying that for practical purposes, they're equivalent. Um, one of the surprises for me was that I ended up dividing greyhound evolution or human greyhound coevolution into two periods um, where they, the, the evolutionary uh, selective forces were, were different, and that led to recognizable differences in the greyhounds and the people who interacted with them. I ended up deciding that one period of greyhound-human coevolution extended from 1200 to 1831, and then a modern period from 1831 to the present. So what was characteristic of that earlier period? I ended up calling it the patrician period, because only patricians were allowed by law to own greyhounds. So 1% of the population, royalty, aristocracy, gentry, those people were legally allowed to own greyhounds. It was illegal for anybody else to own them. Greyhounds had many occupations in this period and I'll come back and describe more about that soon. Because they had many occupations and worked in many habitats, they had wide variation in physical and behavioral traits. And I'll talk more about that in a moment too. But I just wanna give a, an overview with this slide of these periods. In the modern period, in contrast, the law changed. After 1831, anybody could own a greyhound. And at the same time, greyhound occupations became much narrower because the occupations and to a great extent, the habitats they worked in were narrower, the, the traits of the breed narrowed as well. So let's talk about this um, a little bit more. In thinking about 
the collection of forces that shape the traits of breeds, I ended up deciding that the concept of niches was very helpful. Niche is a term from ecology. Ecologists have defined it in many ways. I ended up concluding that a good definition of niche for evolutionary history is job habitat combinations. Those two things, the job description and the habitat in which the job is performed, seem to be the two most important factors shaping the traits of domestic plants and animals. So the job description shapes the physical and the behavioral traits in greyhounds and any other um, animal, that who, any other domestic animal. And the habitats shape the physical and behavioral traits as well. So, so uh, on the right, you see a habitat in which hunting dogs worked in 1576. And remember, greyhounds were hunting dogs. These dogs look, look a little different from that drawing, but in this book, they're not. Um, but they, these two could have been greyhounds because they were used to uh, hunt deer at the time. And here, uh, so you have a forest that you can see in the background, some tree trunks. That was the habitat. The job was to chase and pull down deer. That was the job description for the greyhounds. So this is a specific job, hunting deer in a specific habitat, a forest. Um, but the people too had niches and habitats. The people are working in the same habitat. They're in the forest also, and they have particular jobs. This uh, man who's kneeling next to the deer um, is offering a knife to a woman. Some people say that's Queen Elizabeth, it's unclear. Um, but the people who were involved in hunting deer had very clear rules for how they were supposed to behave when hunting deer and when butchering deer. There were uh, accepted rituals involving over 30 specific steps for butchering a deer after a hunt. And there were rules about which people and, and dogs got which part of the deer afterwards. So the people had job descriptions in that habitat, just the same way that the greyhounds did. The, one of the big contrasts between the two periods is that there, were, there was wide variation in jobs and habitats in the, um, between the patrician period and versus much narrower variation in the modern period. What I found though, was that there was a transitional period within the patrician period. So it's, it's still before 1831, it's still the patrician period, but some things changed in ways that got accelerated after 1831. So in the, this, this late patrician period is going to be the late 19th and early 20, excuse me, um, late 18th and early 19th century. Uh, so in the early patrician period, there were lots of habitats, dogs, greyhounds were adapted to every single estate each owner's estate. In the late patrician, they still had many habitats, but some were adapted to a narrower range. And the, the second item on this list is, is one of the most important. In the early patrician period, greyhounds had 10 different jobs, chasing 10 different prey animals. Whereas by the late patrician period, they pursued really only one, hares. 
going back to the early patrician period, because they had 10 jobs, they, had, they were bred to have 10 different packages of behaviors and 10 different packages of physical traits. Whereas in the late patrician period, uh, there were fewer habitats and, and fewer jobs. So they showed uh, less variation in physical and behavioral traits. So how carefully tailored were they? The breeders in the early patrician period tailored greyhounds uh, for 40 different traits, both behavioral traits and physical traits to make them suited to the specific animals they were chasing and the specific habitat in which they worked. So for example, the greyhounds that chased hearts uh, had to follow in the water and they had to pull down the hearts, which are very large animals. So the greyhounds that, that pursued hearts were large dogs. Uh, on the other hand, some dogs were used to chase and catch rabbits at the opposite end of the size scale. Rabbits twisted and turned a lot in order to chase them and catch them. The greyhounds had to be able to, to turn quickly and, and follow them. Large greyhounds were at a disadvantage because their momentum made it hard to stop and turn quickly. Small greyhounds could stop and turn more quickly to catch rabbits. So the greyhounds that chased rabbits were small. So there we have the two extremes of that scale of 10 jobs. The hearts were the largest animals, the, the rabbits were the smallest, and the size of the greyhounds was tailored. The, an intermediate size prey was foxes. And for this, the, 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 the um, size was intermediate for the greyhounds and the behaviors were different. Instead of just uh, grabbing with the, the teeth onto a deer and trying to pull it down, greyhounds that chase foxes learn to jump on it to pin it because the sharp teeth of the greyhound, uh, excuse me, the fox were quite dangerous. And then they would shake the fox to, to kill it. It probably broke the fox's neck. So three different prey, three different size greyhounds, three different behaviors needed from them. So within the, the greyhound population as a whole, you had a lot of variation. And I'll talk a bit more about the late patrician period uh, in a moment. Before I do, I wanna talk about how greyhounds shaped human evolution. And th this was a hard one for me because I, I, I was confident that greyhounds affected people, but I wasn't sure how to describe that. It, it was clear that greyhounds were not forcing people to do certain things and greyhounds were not causing differential survival among people, which would have potentially led to genetic evolution in people. Not, neither of those held. So it took years for me to figure out how to encapsulate or describe what I thought was going on. Now I began with the, the view that we were only talking about behavioral evolution grounded in culture among people, not physical evolution based on genes. Um, I've seen no evidence that, that it was. But I ended up thinking, so, well, if, if greyhounds weren't um, selecting for, for varied behavior through, through affecting survival of people, how did they affect people? And I ended up deciding that what greyhounds did was that they created opportunities for people to behave in certain ways that they could not behave without greyhounds or at least some other dogs. 
And people chose to accept certain of those opportunities, not all of them, but certain of them. So greyhounds made it possible to hunt those animals that I talked about, the hearts, the foxes, the rabbits. People decided they wanted to use greyhounds to hunt that way. That led people to behave in certain ways. That meant the frequency of hunting behaviors in a human population rose because of greyhounds. Another way to, to uh, quote unquote hunt was to poach, which was illegal hunting. That meant somebody not in that top 1% of the population going out and killing animals that the aristocrats reserved for themselves. And, and poachers used uh, greyhounds and uh, to, to help them bring down prey as well. Then there was coursing, which was a contest in which pairs of greyhounds um, chased a hare and, and the competition was to see which greyhound did better. On the right there, you see an image from a coursing contest. Those two greyhounds are competing against each other. One of them has picked up the hare and is thrown up in the air. On the right, you can see a man on a horse following to judge their performance. So greyhounds created the opportunity to have coursing contests. People accepted that opportunity. Later, especially in the 20th century, greyhounds created the opportunity to have racing contests and that became their primary occupation. Um, lately, the rate, that's been closing down, but for most of the 20th century, that was the primary occupation. People decided they liked having racing greyhounds. So greyhounds created the opportunity for races. People accepted it. The, greyhounds created other opportunities that people did not decide to accept. They created the opportunity for people to eat greyhounds. Uh, and in fact, in, in Asia, in certain Asian countries, it is common to eat dogs. I ate dog when I was in the Philippines at a party. Um, so it, it, the option is there, but I found no evidence that English people were eating dogs uh, of any breed during the period when I was studying. Uh, so so the, the, the greyhounds weren't forcing people to do any one of these, but they did, um, people did decide to accept some of these opportunities and decline others. Now, on the other hand, I realized that if people did want to use greyhounds for these, these um, services, the greyhounds did exact certain prices. It, I didn't want to say that the greyhounds forced people to do certain things, but it seemed fair to say that they needed to be, uh, the people needed to do certain behaviors if they wanted to keep greyhounds around to hunt and course and race. The, the dogs needed to be supplied with food, they needed to be supplied with water, and they needed training. So um, uh, that those were the prices of uh, keeping greyhounds. Nobody, nobody voluntarily would pick up dog waste, for example, um, that I know of, but that is a price that greyhounds exact from people. Pe that is a behavior that becomes pop, um, widespread in human populations because people keep greyhounds. So it's not exactly forcing people to do things, but it, it, it is certainly um, on the road in that direction to, to basically be essential if you wanna keep the greyhounds around. 
So I mentioned this late patrician period, late 18th, early 19th century, and how that affected greyhound evolution. And I promised to come back and, and talk about it more. I'm gonna do that now. So um, this is a period from 1776 to 1831. I can date it that precisely because 1776 is when the first coursing club was formed. 1831 is when the law in England changed and anybody could now own a greyhound. What coursing clubs were, were clubs of patricians who got together to have coursing contests. There were a number of coursing clubs around England. Typically they coursed repeatedly on the same estate belonging to a member of the local aristocracy or gentry. And they each club had standardized rules about how to behave. And in fact, they shared rules among each other. So the rules between clubs were often similar. So what I realized is that in this transitional period, some mild versions of modernization could be seen. Things that we, we often associate with modernity are things like standardization, science, um, and you start to see these sorts of uh, features in the, the greyhound world. So in the let's talk about standardization. In the past, greyhounds were adapted to the estates of its owner, and that meant greyhounds in every state were a little bit different. Now you got islands of local uniformity because the aristocrats in a certain neighborhood were all adapting their dogs to one patrician's estate, not, not necessarily to their own, at least some of their dogs. Um, these coursing clubs had members uh, who were local elite men. Um, all the clubs that I have found were limited to men. And they seemed clearly a reaction against democracy. They, they were exclusive clubs. Most of them were small, a couple dozen members. The, this of course is also a period when the idea of science is taking hold and the members of the coursing clubs developed methods of breeding that they called scientific. The most important one was what Darwin called methodical selection, which we just call breeding. Um, and, and what was important among other things was that these coursing club members believed that their breeding produced superiority um, and, and that they, they were improving the breed through their, their actions. But here's one thing that's very interesting because you see it in this period and not later in the, in the show period. The leading breeder of the day crossed greyhounds with bulldogs and that was considered a wonderful advance in improving the breed because it gave them more determination, more staying power. So the idea that crossbreeding pushed the descendants out of a breed was not held at the time. Now, the, these, these clubs um, developed the, the concept that greyhounds could be ranked and you could identify superiority. Before that, when, when greyhounds were hunting on individual estates, every individual patrician could define for themselves what made for a good or bad greyhound. 
once you had these clubs, you had standard rules for these coursing contests, which meant that you could have a series of knockout rounds and have a winner. And thus, these clubs started saying that the, the Greyhounds that won club coursing contests were superior. And then they extended it. It, it is, I think, quite valid to say that the dog that won the contest that day on that estate was the best dog that day on that estate. But these elite clubs of men went farther and said their breeding produced universally superior greyhounds. And the, the strongest clubs, there are clubs all over, but the strongest ones were in Southern England. And in that habitat, uh, short fur was advantageous. And uh, so they, they started saying that longer fur, which was useful in, in areas that had more briars, uh, that rougher fur was a sign of inferiority and they labeled it uh, Scotch and Irish greyhounds and lurchers. Um, I'm in the interest of, here's an example of, of greyhounds in different clubs that had different traits um, all in the early 19th century. I'll just note that in the left in Newmarket, this was uh, a club that had wide open fields and the hares tended to run straight. So the greyhounds that did best were very large and muscular and had smooth fur. But in Yorkshire, where the uh, greyhounds were hunting hares that turned a lot and often went into hedges, the greyhounds were smaller, stouter and more terrier-like. Uh, to be suitable in that environment. So you had one breed uh, and one job description, coursing club rules, but the habitats were different, which meant the niches were different, which meant you had two populations and two packages of traits. Now, the, the claim that the Southern dogs were universally superior was falsified because some of the best dogs in the Newmarket environment were sent to Yorkshire to compete. And it was found that the the, the New market dogs were inferior in Yorkshire, and the experiment was done the other direction too. The Yorkshire dogs were inferior in Newmarket. Um, so this idea of universal superiority was falsified, but that did not stop people from believing it. Um, modernization changed uh, everything. It, in 1831, a new law allowed anyone to own it. And now you got even stronger forces of modernity shaping dogs. You got bureaucracies, industry, standardization, and capitalism. In bureaucracies, you had kennel clubs and coursing clubs. Industry was important. Suddenly you had, not suddenly, but a, a railroad system developed, which led to a national breeding pool and national contests. You had standardization of expectations, thanks to things like newspapers and magazines. And, and capitalism came in. The entrepreneurs started dog shows and uh, coursing contests that uh, um, spectators came to and bet on. Over the 19th century, the niches became narrower and narrower, partly because one contest called the Waterloo Cup at a particular state, Altcar, was, uh, came to be the de facto national championship. So you had dogs from all over England being adapted to this one habitat. Also, dog shows became popular. And here, uh, initially, the, the habitats were quite varied, but they became standardized indoor habitats and standardized judging points uh, came along. Uh, 
So in conclusion, um, what I'm suggesting is that human and canine populations have always interacted with each other in very interesting and changing ways. And they, they have shaped each other repeatedly and reciprocally. Breeds themselves are not statues. They have varied and changed and historically been porous rather than isolated breeding populations. To understand the forces shaping dog breeds, niches are valuable to consider, meaning a job habitat combination. And these niches are, are shaped by these really big social forces that historians have studied a lot, but rarely applied to the way they affect the evolution of non-human species. In this case, modernization, things like industry, bureaucracy, standardization. We know that that really shaped human life, but we've had little to say about how that shaped the traits of non-human species. Um, so I divided the, the period of coevolution into the patrician and modern. Those are some of the important modern forces. And overall, what we see between 1200 and 1900 is a trend from much greater variation in jobs and habitats for both people and the greyhounds who lived with them to less variation and uh, uh, less porosity in the populations towards the end. So that's the end of my presentation. and. I would love to answer questions and talk. Yeah, thank you so much, Professor Russell. That was really fascinating. Um, and uh, I'm sure the audience is uh, um, fervent with uh, lots of questions. Um, so if you guys have any questions for Professor Russell, just put on the, uh, on the Q&A box here on the bottom of the screen. Um, in the meanwhile, yeah, Dr. Uh, uh, Susan Flavin has a, a, a couple of questions here. If you allow me, Susan, just I, if I can ask the first one, <laughs> I have one here. Uh, um, so, Professor Russell, you were uh, you commented, uh, you, you know, more than once in your presentation that uh, this coevolution you're talking about um, is um, well on the side of the dogs. It is evolution in the strict, um, well, maybe not strict, but, you know, in the Darwinian sense, right? Um, you know, the dogs did change in their uh, corporality and their genetic makeup, right? Um, but, you, you know, the human side of the equation um, was not changed, at least in genetic terms, right? You explained that, uh, and, and this was a, a, a good argument, uh, that the dogs, that the, the dog breeds produced by human activity um, in turn gave people opportunities to behave differently. So this was, uh, 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 you know, a case of uh, uh, behavioral um, evolution, so to speak. Uh, and this makes uh, perfect sense. I was just thinking that um, in some cases, uh, genetic makeup of humans do change, right? Uh, I was I was reading the other day this uh, uh, piece on this ethnic group uh, from Southeast Asia, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, the uh, sea nomads. Um, They're called sea nomads, and apparently they uh, developed this technique of a uh, bath hold diving, uh, which you know over 
over the years, over the decades, even centuries, I presume, um, forced some physiological adaptations that apparently got encoded into their um, genetic makeup. And, you know, there are other cases, like, for example, yeah, people living in extreme high altitude environments, right? Um, and I was thinking that uh, this is also, this is something that also feeds into this um, human exceptionalism um, trope, right? The fact that humans, uh, uh, you know, it is said that humans don't change genetically. Uh, 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 their bodies do not change. What we do change is, uh, you know, we, 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 we mold, we shape our culture. That's what, you know, separates us from the rest of nature, right? Uh, uh, so I was thinking, do you envision um, fields of, uh, not fields, but topics of study in which humans also, you know, change genetically alongside, uh, uh, um, you know, the non-human organisms they are uh, um, interacting with? And uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, and do you think this, you know, feeds into the debate of uh, the, you know, the endless debate of us being part or, or not of nature or uh, something like that? Right, couple points. One was um, the idea that culture is what separates people from everything else, right? Mm -hmm, That's what mm -hmm. you're saying. So I, I see it differently. I think lots of species have culture, which a simple definition would be learned behaviors. Um, uh, the, the, the scholars who have been studying cultural evolution have have said that that um, in this context we can think of culture as ideas about how to behave, um, recipes for behavior they get transmitted from one individual to another, and they they can become more and less frequent in a population, uh, and they they can be learned, and they can they they can be transmitted in different ways than genes. So uh, behaviors can be transmitted from children to parents, for example. So reversing the usual direction, they can be passed among non-relatives. They can change very fast within a lifetime. Those are different from genetic inheritance. So it's different, um, but th that's not limited to people. Uh, the primatologists are probably best known for looking at the, the um, very large role that the uh, culture plays in those societies, but also the more biologists look, the more examples they find of culture and learned behavior in birds and other mammals. And so it's clearly widespread. So I, I do not see culture as a unique human trait that distinguishes people from all of other species. Uh, I think we are especially, um, I think culture plays an especially large role in our lives, but it's not a fundamental dividing line. Um, so that's one point. And then you were asking about human genetic evolution in historical time, I think. And you were saying that it looks like people have evolved. Yes, uh, people have evolved in historical time. My argument here was focused on whether they had evolved in response to greyhounds. Genetic, had humans evolved genetically in response to greyhounds? I have no evidence that they have. 
but people have evolved genetically in response to other domestic animals, the most famous being cattle. Um, people who uh, have developed dairying traditions have um, lactase persistence, meaning that they can continue to, they have, um, so lactase is a, uh, an enzyme produced by a gene that enables organisms to digest milk. And uh, all mammals, of course, drink milk. And the rule is that that enzyme is no longer produced after weaning. And historically, that looks to be the case in people as well. But among certain cultures that raise cattle, um, the, the uh, genetic signal that, that tells the body to stop producing lactase at, after weaning doesn't work. And so people continue, some people continue to produce it into adulthood. And so they can consume dairy products without any problem. Um, so, it, and in fact, exactly how it gets turned off varies regionally. Um, so it, it, the same trait has looked to evolve in different places, both because of dairying, um, but the, what, the chance genetic variation that allowed for lactase persistence was different in the two places. So that's an example of where people appear to have evolved genetically relatively recently in response to living closely with domestic animals. Um, and probably digest, there's some evidence of, of uh, I believe with wheat digestion and other things. So it does uh, certainly appear that people are um, capable and have evolved genetically in certain circumstances. I try to be especially careful because of the history of genetic determinism being misapplied to people. Um, I, I think that we have to reserve the claim that people have evolved genetically for when we really have the evidence. Uh, mm -hmm. We can't assume that, that human differences are due to genes. Um, mm -hmm. we, until we have the evidence, I think we, we, we just have to say that the jury's out. We don't know. But I am comfortable talking about cultural evolution because I have documents that show me people behave certain ways at time A and they behaved a different way at time B. So I have records that lead me to be comfortable claiming we have seen cultural evolution. Perfect, thank you. Um, Dr. Susan Flavin, um, um, there is, that's, she, she's saying that. <laughs> there is evidence in recipe books that people in the 16th and 17th century England consumed dogs. Puppy fat was used in cosmetics and in medicines. Might these have been specially bred for, uh, for this? That's a great question. I really appreciate that. I did not know about those recipes. Um, thank you for telling me. This is, this is one of the benefits of, of talking to an audience with more expertise than I have. I'd love, if you, if you happen to know which recipe books have that, I'd love to get a citation. Um, I, I, so as far as puppy fat being used in cosmetics and medicines, uh, I, I, I know of dogs being used, dog bodies being used um, for other purposes. They're, 
feces was called pure and was used in tanning, um, uh, leather, and um, their skin was used to make gloves. So there were various um, products made from dog bodies. I am unfamiliar with breeding dogs for those particular purposes, but I but uh, um, I would love to find out if that's the case. So I I, I can say that I read a lot, <laughs> everything <laughs> I could about dogs, and don't remember encountering that. But your example about the recipe books um, show that, of course, we, we only see some of what's there and, and more research can uncover new things. Great. Um, from Andy Keefe, um, thank you for a fascinating talk. I was wondering if you could say a little more about how um, Nietzsche is compared in constructing animals and people. Would you say that animals and people were socially constructed in the same way? If not, how did the forms of construction vary? So I think they co-constructed their niches. People couldn't remember that that woodcut of hunting in a forest with uh, one of the hunters butchering, getting ready, uh, well, holding a knife to the woman to, to make the initial cut in a deer. It was possible to, to to, for people to inhabit that niche of deer hunting because greyhounds were there. So, um, and, and conversely, greyhounds could have that niche because people took care of them and, and fed them, trained them and that sort of thing. So I, they co-constructed the niches. Um, are the means of constructing the niches different? I, uh, boy, that's a big one. Um, This is probably where the, the chat function is a little uh, clumsy for us. I'd, I'd love to hear a little more from the questioner about what you have in mind, uh, because I find that an interesting question, but I'm not sure the answer I'm thinking about is headed in the direction you're thinking of. Yeah, no, yeah, maybe this uh, this person could add something, add some comment that would uh, clarify the, the question later. Um, well, from uh, Fiona O'Callaghan, um, when Greyhound races open for gambling and expectators, did many working classes, uh, working class people attend? Did that change the perception slash role of Greyhounds? Great questions, and the answer is yes. The answers are yes and yes. Greyhound racing became a very popular working class sport. And that changed the perception of greyhounds. It inverted it. Before 1831, because ownership was limited to patricians, greyhounds were seen as symbols of elite status. And, and you would see them in, in coats of arms and that kind of thing. So they were uh, symbols of elite status. Mm -hmm. Once ownership was democratized, it no longer meant elite. And then as dog racing became popular in the 20th century with large urban tracks that were heavily patronized by um, workers, the, the greyhounds started being seen as, as uh, I don't know if you all can see me, but in quotes, lower class um, animals because they're associated with workers. I don't like upper and lower class because of the implication of hierarchy. 
but uh, you know that they're seen more as a working class dog rather than an, an elite dog. Mm -hmm. From um, Kunian Zeng, um, thanks for your wonderful talk, Professor Russo. You mentioned that job and habitat are two key elements to define nature for domestic plants and animals. Then how do we define nature for those untamed plants and animals? Does it follow the general way of defining Nietzsche in the, in, the, uh, in the ecosystem, which means Nietzsche represents the conditions of its environment, of its environment within which a particular type of living thing can live successfully? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's in the same neighborhood. The 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 when I was uh, getting my PhD in biology, I was taught a different definition of niche, meaning the resources that particular populations or species use to survive. And um, didn't know at that time how much the concept of niche had changed over time. I learned later as I dug into it more that uh, one of the earlier definitions of niche was actually the job description, not the collection of resources that a species needed, but rather the job that that say a badger performs. That's its niche. Um, so, so what I took away is a deeper appreciation of the fact that ecologists have used the word niche in various ways, and those are all potentially legitimate ways to define it. So, I think the question is, what kinds of questions is uh, is the scholar trying to answer and which niche definition provides the most purchase, analytical purchase for the scholar. And then we just need to be clear in defining it. Um, how do I think of niches in the wild? They um, Historically, those were less shaped by people. Today in the era of climate change, people are changing niches, habitats all over the world. So now, all, basically all niches are being shaped partly by people. Um, so uh, e even, even the so-called wild plants and animals are, are now in niches partly constructed by people. Thank you. Um, one, uh, one last question, I guess, um, from um, Edward um, Collins. Um, Dog bodies were used to make leather for falcons' jesses in early modern Spain and Spanish America also. Uh, dog leather was considered very uh, soft and suitable. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, there is, you know, it was cut short, the uh, the question. Sorry. Uh, Edward, do you want to? Oh, there's another question here from, from him. Have you looked at the use of greyhounds, dogs, slash dogs for hunting in other uh, for example, continental or European settings? No, I haven't. I, I focused on England. Okay. Um, a little bit in Ireland, um, which of course for most of this, uh, anyway, the, 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 the differences and similarities in Ireland ended up uh, looking like a complication beyond what I could take on in, in this book. So I ended up focusing just on, on England. Okay, um, let me just see if we have other questions here. Um, 
another question by um by uh susan flavin what are what are the general challenges of this type of inter interdisciplinary research in uh, in methodological terms right uh, because i guess um as part of of uh, of um of environmental history uh, we have to couple um scientific sources uh and uh more traditional uh, written historical sources, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> what? So one of the one of the challenges is that you usually double your work. Um, the experts <laughs> in both fields want you to be fully uh, on top of the literature in their fields, and um, we'll let you know when you fall short. So. <laughs> Uh, that that's that's a price that that you have to pay. Now you can mitigate that, but for example, by working in teams and with people from different disciplines, and and then you just focus on finding the common ground. But need, no individual is responsible for for both of those disciplines, knowing those two disciplines. Um, in my case, I just really wanted to work at the intersection. I, I majored in English as an undergraduate, so I came out of a literature background. Then I got interested in sustainable agriculture and went to graduate school in ecology to try to work in sustainable agriculture. And that got me interested in the roots of unsustainable agriculture, um, which took me into environmental history. Uh, I just find it particularly exciting and um, rewarding to work at the intersection of these fields. Uh, I, in some ways, I think it, it has a, uh, it's a high risk, but high payoff approach. Um, one of the easier ways to say something new in discipline A is to go find ideas in discipline B and bring them back to discipline A. So it, it um, and some people in discipline A will object, but my experience, at least in environmental history, um, is that people like it. They they're they're curious. They want to know. And one of the one of the really big challenges for me was how do I write about biology in a way that historians will not find off-putting? Uh, how do I? And this was especially true in the in the evolutionary history book. So I, I worked very hard to limit biological terms. I wanted to limit the sense that this was a foreign language people had to learn, even though that's the way I look at it. In many ways, the way I, I, I well, this maybe is a good place to, to, to arrive with this. I ended up thinking that science is, is, historians already have a concept that's relevant here, which is the idea of working languages. We, we have this long tradition in history that if you want to study a particular country, you need to learn the language so you can read mm -hmm. the sources from that. And the way and, and, and then the, the historian is, is to some extent a translator, translating sources from one language to the language in which that historian is working, writing and speaking. And I see myself as a translator. I learned science. I got a PhD in biology. So I understand the language, but I'm deeply sensitive to the need to translate that to language that a broader audience um, can understand. So that, that's my effort. Whether I succeed is another question, but it, but it is my, um, the way I think about that role. 
Yeah, and I can uh, and I, and I can attest that you've been very successful. <laughs> uh, at least in my case, I remember reading your book, um, "The Evolutionary History." It's a 2010 book, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, so back when I was doing part of my PhD, and uh, it did change a lot the way I looked at um, history and um, human environmental relations. Uh, I guess that's uh, all we have time for, unfortunately. And uh, I want to thank Professor Russell for this inspiring talk. Uh, that was really uh, amazing, um, an opportunity for us to interact uh, with, uh, you know, this kind of cutting edge research. So uh, thank you so much. And thank you for, um, thank you the audience for the questions. Yep. Thank you all. This has been a pleasure. The Hub is a community. Okay. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.